Grace and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit who comforts us in the name of Jesus. Amen. There's always a sinful urge that exists within our hearts to justify ourselves. This means whatever good we may do or whatever sin we may avoid, whether religious acts we may take part in, they are all done with at least a hint of an effort to prove to ourselves and the people around us that we are good. If we are not mindful of our hearts and our actions, we can quickly make everything we say and do about this attempt to demonstrate our own righteousness our own goodness, our own greatness. And that's what happened to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that we meet in the New Testament. They were obsessed with deluding themselves to believing, I am good because I am doing good. Their adherence to the law, their worship in the temple, their entire religious life became entirely about making that case clear. It's about what I do. And this is what we see with the lawyer who put Jesus to the test as he comes to Jesus and asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus, as he often does when dealing with hypocrites, answers his question with another question. Jesus attempts to show the error in the way that this man is thinking as he responds, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And the man responds. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And you know what? That man is right. This is what must be done to inherit eternal life. You must love God perfectly and fully. You must love your neighbor as yourself. These things must be done to inherit eternal life. But immediately... Jesus' answer causes this man to regret his response because he says, You've answered correctly, do this and you will live. And this man now is trapped. He's trapped under the weight of the law. Because what is the man's immediate reaction to this? How does he respond to Jesus' answer? Well, he feels that he must justify himself. And why is that? Because it goes back to the question, what must I do? He did not ask the question, how can I be saved, or how does God give me salvation? No, this man's mind, salvation is not a gift that is given by God. It's simply something he had to achieve. It is something that he needed to do for God. He wants to be saved by what he does. He wants to be saved by fulfilling the law. And so he asks Jesus a law question, and what does Jesus do? He gives him a law answer. And the problem comes to him when the law answer does what it's supposed to do. It accuses him. That's what the law does. Jesus says, what does the law say? Well, the reformers had a phrase that was meant to describe the work of the law. It was lex simper accusit, or the law will always accuse you. This is what St. Paul means when he says, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. He's saying that when we hear the law of God given in the Holy Scriptures, 
We don't become less sinful because we know the law. But in reality, we begin to see ourselves for what we truly are. See, the law works like a mirror. You look in the mirror, and, and maybe this is a reality we can all relate to, we look in the mirror and the older we get, the more flaws we see, the more wrinkles, or the grayer the hair, or in my case, the thinner the hair. It shows our weakness, it shows our error, it demonstrates how we fall short, how we failed to complete the will of God that has been set before us. The law is not a pathway to salvation. It's a witness against us. That's the point that Moses makes in Deuteronomy when he has the book of the law placed next to the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. He commands the Levites to take the book of the law, put it next to the Ark, saying, take this book of the law, <coughs> put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. Here Moses is making a very clear case. He says, you're going to sin. And when you do, God's law will not relieve you of your sin, but it will serve as a testimony against you. It will show you your sins, and it will drive you into despair of your own righteousness, and your despair and goodness, uh, you'll despair of any goodness in yourself, and in that you will actually fear the Lord. And so this teacher of the law asks a law question of the Lord, and he receives a law answer from the Lord Jesus. And when he gets that law answer, he fails to see what is needed. See, the intention there was that he would fall before Jesus, seeing that he was beaten. He would fail to see himself any longer as anything other than a sinner. But he falls back under that old temptation. He attempts to justify himself. And he asks, well, who is my neighbor? Here the lawyer is doing what lawyers do best. He's looking for a loophole. He wants to find ways out from the law's accusation. Because in his mind, he's loved God, but his neighbor... Oh. Perhaps that needed some narrowing down. Perhaps Jesus needs to limit the scope of this commandment. Who is my neighbor? How could he love everyone as himself? That's not attainable. He needs Jesus to make the accusation of the law a little less severe. And so this is when Jesus gives us the parable. He tells us of the Good Samaritan. He talks about the man traveling down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he's on the road. He falls into the hand of robbers who beat him and take all that he has and leave him half dead. And you have to think at this point that the lawyer is feeling pretty good at himself. He says, all right, I have not robbed or beaten anyone. I must be doing good so far. So good. Thank you, Jesus. As Jesus goes on with the story, though, things begin to crumble for him. Because as that man lay on the side of the road, na naked and half dead, a priest comes by. And at this point in the parable, the lawyer may be thinking, ah, all right, that priest is going to be pious and faithful. This man is saved. Maybe Jesus is saying that I should be like the priest. But once again, the man is surprised. The priest is concerned about his priestly duty. And so he couldn't touch the man. He would get blood on his hands. What if this man was dead? He would end up being unclean. He wouldn't be able to perform his priestly duties. So what happens? 
priest passed by on the other side of the road, and the naked, half-dead man is unhelped. So then Jesus says that a Levite comes upon this poor, suffering man. Now, the lawyer may have then thought, okay, perhaps the priest had to be excused. He had his priestly work to do, but the Levite surely would have helped the poor man. But once again, Jesus subverts that thought. The Levites had charge of taking care of the temple. They would have kept the furniture in the building in good repair. They would have other duties. They would have been singers. They would have played instruments in the temple. They would have been integral to the worship of God. They would have overseen the temple library. They would have even had accounting of the temple treasury. But once again, to participate in these things, he would have been, had to have been undefiled and ceremonially clean. So guess what? He did not help the beaten man. And so what do we see here so far? The two men who represented the law, the priest and the Levite, they were unable to help the half-dead man lying on the side of the road. The strict adherence to the law actually denied this man salvation. In his hour of deepest need, the law could not save the half-dead beaten man. It was not preoccupied with the man's well-being, but rather it was being fulfilled in of itself. Now, you've got to understand this. The law of God is good. The law of God is God's will. God gives the law for our sake so that we might know his will and that he may bless us in knowing his will. Yet the priest and the Levite were sinners. And in their sin, their adherence to the law drove them to abandon a dying man on the roadside. And why was that? It's because the law of God will always tear us in two. It will always drive us into ourselves that become so preoccupied with how we're keeping the law that we become blinded to what the law demands of us. The law of God demands that we love. That is the calling we're giving in the law. We're called to love, to love God and to love our neighbor. Yet because we are sinners, the calling, calling is often replaced with self. Love by nature is meant to drive a person's focus away from himself. Love for God takes focus away from self and fixes it upon God. How can I serve God? How can I praise God? How is God good? Love for neighbor does the same. It replaces our gaze upon ourself and it fixes it on another. Love drives us to no longer take concern for our own needs and our own desires and our own pleasures, but calls us to see the need and desire and pleasure of God and our neighbor. Think about this when it comes before our life before God. We pray in the Lord's Prayer, thy will be done, but do we mean it? Luther explains this petition by saying, God's will is done when he breaks and hinders every evil plan and purpose of the devil, the world, and our sinful nature, which does not want us to hallow God's name or let his kingdom come, and when he strengthens and keeps us firm in his word and faith until we die. He's saying that this prayer is nothing other than asking God to put our sinful desires to death so that his will would be done for our good. We ask that he break our will and desire and replace them with his. And the same goes for our neighbor. Think about this in terms of maybe a marriage. 
Who is a spouse supposed to be more concerned about in a marriage? Here's a hint. It's not themselves. It is their God-given husband or wife. Their happiness, need, comfort, and help are what they're called to tend to. Husbands are meant to love their wives before themselves. Wives are meant to show love and respect towards their husbands before themselves. And the same goes for every vocation. Parents are to deny themselves for the sake of their children. Children are to deny themselves for the sake of their parents. Church members are to deny themselves for the sake of the body of Christ. Pastors are to deny themselves to the preaching of the word. Rulers are to deny themselves to serve society. Citizens are to deny themselves to obey the law and do their civic duties. The spirit of the law is love. Yet because we are sinners, this is often very ignored. Rather, the desire to keep the law often drives us away from its given intent. And it drives us inward. And we become so preoccupied with our adherence to the letter that we forget the law is given for love. We want to justify ourselves. And in this effort to justify ourselves, we end up rejecting the spirit of the law. And it's exactly what we see happen with the priest and the Levite. Sin caused the law to have the opposite effect. It drove them to denying their neighbor when he needed them the most. And it became a convenient excuse not to love him. They would have gotten their hands dirty. And this is where Jesus surprised us in this parable. Because the priest and the Levite showed us that the law cannot save them. So what can? And here Jesus introduces the Samaritan. That universally hated, unclean, half-breed, heretical class of people, the Samaritan. The Samaritans were understood to be the worst. They were people that were resettled in the land when the tribes of Israel went into their exile. And they adopted the law of God and the traditions of the Israelites, yet they did it all a little weird and a little wrong. They were imitators of the people of God. They worshipped on a different mountain. They had a different temple. They did not have the tribe of Aaron serving in their temple. They were not descendants of Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. They were posers. And the children of Israel despised them for it. If anyone was expected to be the villain in this parable, it would have been the Samaritan. He would have been the one who was expected to see this half-dead man come up to him, finish the job, kick him while he was down, pull out his teeth, and sell it to traitors. That's not what happened. The Samaritan had mercy. He saw the poor, beaten man and his suffering, and he took compassion upon him. He cleaned his wounds, he dressed them, he put him upon his own beast and brought him to safety. He paid for his care, he went out of his way to ensure that this half-beaten, half-dead man was restored to health and life, at great expense to his own time, energy, and treasure. He denied himself, and he loved his neighbor. This would have been so wildly unexpected, yet this is Jesus' point. The law could not save the beaten man, but giving sacrificial love could. Love that came outside of this man to help him. 
And to understand this, we must understand who the Samaritan is in this parable. We can hear this parable and see him as a positive example of what maybe we're supposed to be. Uh, You go, be that good Samaritan. Show mercy. That's your true calling. We're called to love our neighbor, help him, and care for him in this way. That's true. But that's not the question Jesus is answering when he tells this parable. Remember, the question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? See, that's the root of it all. Jesus is not telling this parable to give a better understanding of the law. He's already proven that the law cannot save us. Whether he's describing something much greater. He's telling the story of the gospel. The Good Samaritan is Jesus. And that means that we are not the priest, we're not the uh, Levite, we're not the Samaritan, because that's Christ. We're not even the robbers. We're the half-dead, brutally beaten, helpless man. We are those who hoped in the law to save us and saw it pass us by. The law is powerless when it comes to salvation. St. Paul says that in Romans 8. He says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemns sin in the flesh, so that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This means that because of our sins, we cannot look to the law to justify us. The law has failed. It cannot, according to our flesh, save. We cannot put any hope in our works, our efforts, our devotion, or our piety to give us eternal life. These things cannot save us because we are sinful. Rather, we need someone who can intervene and deal with the problem for us. We need a Savior. We need a good Samaritan. We need Jesus. The lawyer wanted Jesus to elaborate on the law so that the law could be shortened and concise and made smaller so it could save him. That's not what the law does. It leaves people helpless and hopeless on the roadside, stripped of any dignity or strength, and passes us by without pity or health, and it leaves us dead. That's what St. Paul says when he says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Because that's what the law does. It reveals how dead we are. The question of salvation is only answered when we see the one who intervenes on our behalf. Salvation cannot be a work of man. Somebody got an alarm going off. Salvation must be God's own holy work alone. It must be completely alien to us, come from the outside. Otherwise, it would become tainted by our own sin. Like every effort of our flesh. Now, salvation is a work of grace. The dead can only decay and become more dead. The living one must come and give life to the dead. And this is the good news of Jesus. He is the one who acts graciously toward us who have been dead. 
His gracious work for us is what saves us. That's what St. Paul says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of work, so that no one may boast. Jesus, the Good Samaritan, is gracious towards us. He bears us up in our misery and distress. He lifts us out of our sins and tends to our deepest need. As he pays the price for our deliverance from the power of sin and death. That price is played in the blood upon his cross. From that cross, he binds and cleanses our wounds. He carries us to safety and he ensures that we are continually treated, fed, and revived once again in his grace. That's what it means to be a Christian. The life of the Christian is continually coming to Jesus for help as we're beaten down by our sin. It is continually being comforted and cared for and delivered as children of God. So often Christians will hear the gospel, be saved, and then fall back into confidence in the law. They'll say, now that I'm saved, it's time for me to get to work, do my part, and complete my work of salvation. It once again becomes more focused on me and what I do, and when that is the case, I will always be disappointed. Now, Jesus does not call us to do this or to be this. Rather, he calls us to fix our eyes, to rest our hearts, and place all of our total hope upon him, his cross, and his resurrection. Because Jesus dies for the sins of the world. And he lives so that we might have life in him to the fullest. The fullness of life is lived when we see ourselves for what we truly are. We're sinners in need of saving. And that is what Jesus does. Our entire lives are to be filled with that care and love that Jesus has to give us. And that means we live in repentance and faith. We see and believe what sin has done to us. We place no confidence in any work or effort that we commit ourselves to. We simply trust in Jesus. We take the medicine that he gives us that promises us relief and comfort in this life. And that means that we gladly hear his word. We hold to the power of his holy absolution. We trust in the promise of our baptism. We eat and drink his body and blood for the remission of our sins. Here we're given the medicine of immortality because our sins are forgiven in these things. These things heal our wounds and feed us with what we need to live before God. And it does this because it promises forgiveness. In this way, we have done for us what the law can never do. We are brought out from the death of our sin into the life of God that we have in Jesus. And that is what Jesus is teaching the lawyer in our text. The lawyer asks, what must I do? And Jesus gives the perfect answer. As he gives the parable, it's as if he's saying, you can do nothing. Your sin has left you beaten and helpless. But don't worry. I will do everything for you. I will raise you up. I will care for you. I will take the price and burden of your sin upon myself. Simply trust in me. Believe me. Do you see the sweetness of that promise? 
No longer do we have to strive to justify ourselves. Jesus has done it. And do you know what this also means? It means that we're free to love our neighbor according to God's commandment. Not out of righteous obligation, but purely for their sake. Out of love that flows from the gospel. See, Jesus ends that parable with that command, you go and do likewise. But this command can only be carried out when we have been loved by Jesus. As St. John says, we love because he first loves us. So we always look first to him. We look to him to be our good Samaritan who delivers us from sin, death, and the devil. We look to him to lift us out of the ditch of sin and death and to bear us as his burden into life and salvation. We look to him to be the one who fulfills, begins, and completes all good works and all good things in our life. And from that, we strive to love not for the sake of our own righteousness, but because Christ is righteous and has shown his love for us. This is what he will always do. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you that you have loved us in our lost condition. We thank you for Jesus, our good Samaritan, who has mercy on us in our need. And we pray from his mercy that we too would rightly love you with our whole being and love our neighbor as ourselves. In the name of Jesus, amen. We rise. Now may the peace of God that surpasses all understanding guard your hearts and your minds in the true faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the name of Jesus. Amen.